If you could put all the variety and spirit of Italian cuisine into one place, it would be what I'm holding in my hands right now. Fred Plotkin has written the definitive book on the foods of Italy, and he's our guest today on Travel with Rick Steves. Fred has refined his palate through first-hand knowledge of the seasonal and regional characteristics of Italian cuisine. He's here to help us understand just what makes authentic Italian cuisine so darn good. His book, Italy for the Gourmet Traveler, is the definitive authority on the subject, and Fred Plotkin shares his passion for a great Italian cuisine with mouthwatering expertise. Fred, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Rick. People say, I've got a good job. Boy, you've got a beautiful gig here, getting up to date on Italian food and then visiting all these restaurants. Well, never to complain, but one does have to keep one's weight down, number one. (laughs) And number two, if I'm going to provide for the reader, for example, the best fegatola veneziana, which is Venetian calf's liver, it means I have to try about 15 to 20 versions before I can say which one I like the most. So... At a certain point, you get a little tired, even of something delicious. But mind you, I'm not complaining. It's a I know. I was going to. I was just going to say, you're not going to get any sympathy from me, just like a lot of people <laughs> tell me that. What a beautiful <laughs> life's mission to introduce Italian cuisine to American travelers. You know, I'm sort of a more of an intermediate eater instead of a gourmet eater, and um, I'm learning. And when I go to Italy, I got to say, it's it beats well it. It's as good as France for me for cuisine. And, of course, French and Italian cuisine are, are very different. How, how would you sum up, why do people like Italian food so much? Well, the main difference for me between French and Italian food is that the Italians respect and honor primary materials, which is to say ingredients, and use them at their best. The French have invented all of these sauces to, in effect, cover up deficiencies in products Not to say that the French don't have very good food products. They do. But the difference is is that they mask things in sauce. Mm -hmm. The only time really in Italy you see a sauce is to dress a pasta and that it's a glorious sauce full of flavor. But French sauces are more about herbs, spices, and wine that mask food. And those of us who love nature, who love spontaneity, respond to the Italian character of food, which is to say its immediacy its freshness, its seasonality. That's what the Italians are great at. Could you make a case that it's even more important to eat with the season to appreciate Italian food than French food? I think anywhere one goes, one must eat with the season. Um, We now have a, a common usage to say that one should eat locally and seasonally. The Italians have always done that. And the reason is, if you pick a vegetable in the morning and eat it at noon, it will be fresher than anything that you've acquired five days before that traveled 3,000 miles. So fresh, seasonal, and local is always the preferable thing to do. Um, I like to say that I'm a culinary geographer. That means that I study soils, I study air, I study the seas, and understand how the qualities of these different environments influence the food. So near Naples, you have Mount Vesuvius. Mount Vesuvius spewed and spews still a lot of lava. This puts minerals in the soil that give color and fragrance and flavor to things such as apricots, cherries, peaches, and especially lemons. And the flavors that come from near Mount Vesuvius in Neapolitan food are fabulous for that reason. You would not have Hmm. that, say, in Milan, where there's no volcano. So you could have the same climate, 
but different quality of lemons because of what Vesuvius gives to the soil around Naples? Exactly so. And also, which way are the lemons positioned toward the sun? How close are they to the sea? If they're near the sea, there will be more salt because the salt air flavors the food. So in Liguria, there are slopes that grow olives, and they tend to put little bands around the top of the bottle indicating where the olives grew in relation to the sea. The lowest elevations have blue bands for the sea. The middle elevations are greener, and then the topmost are sort of a gray. And that's how you know, just by looking at the bottle, how high the olive groves were that produced your oil. That's culinary geography. And is that a qualitative thing or just a style difference of the olives? It's absolutely qualitative. You can take the same cultivar, the same olive, and plant it at different elevations, in different soils, with different air exposures, and different amounts of salt in the environment, you will absolutely taste the difference. We can I mean, is one better than the other, or is it a, a matter of personal taste, what you would prefer and it seek out? It would depend what you'd want to use it for and cook it with. For example, if I were eating fruit and olive oil, and that does happen, I would use the less salty oil. Whereas if I'm, say, dressing a piece of fish that I've poached, I might use the saltier oil. And those little differences are phenomenal. What you do as a test is you take the fruit, you use the three different oils. You take the fish, you use the three different oils, and instantly you recognize the differences. And you don't need to be a sophisticate to recognize those differences? Not at all. Not at all. You may not have the words to describe right. what you're experiencing, but you know that they're different. And you know what you like. Absolutely. And and I always believe there's no right and wrong. Right. We make our taste and then we eat what we like. Now, to me, this this is something to aspire to, to better appreciate great food. You know, you're a gourmet expert at this. Uh, would the typical Italian eater be clued into this, do you think, more than the typical American eater? Absolutely. But without knowing it, we Americans use words such as foodie, and it indicates a certain degree of passion or consumerism or interest. Italians care about these things, but they don't describe them that way. They would simply sit down in a restaurant in an Ostia, in a trattoria, and savor. That's really the difference. Americans don't savor their food. We understand that something might be special or valuable, and we might say, mm, that's good, but we don't really think about the why. And as a human being, we are given these fabulous senses of sight, of taste, of touch, of smell, at hearing. And therefore, we can use these as we approach food, as we would music, literature, making love, whatever. It's all of a piece. Now, I've got European friends that are appalled at what I put together when I'm eating. The Europeans are good at creating what they call a good marriage of tastes. Talk about that. Well, I don't think that the Europeans are better than we are. What I love in America is that we are a nation that is open to new things, to mixing, to blending. We produce cuisines and dishes that are the envy of Europe. And we do have in our country availability of fantastic ingredients. But what the Europeans perhaps do better than we do is the notion of balance, of equilibrium so that the sweet, the tart, the salty will be in a certain kind of balance. We will understand that a fragrance in a wine that we taste will influence how we perceive the food we're having it with. Now, I do want to specify none of this is a test. It's not – we don't pass and fail. 
It's a pleasure. I call myself a pleasure activist. And what we do is we simply experience new things. We learn from our experiences. We continue doing what we like. And we don't do what we didn't like, but at least we learn from the experience of sampling something that didn't taste good. So would that be like uh, having red wine with fish, you say? Which is fine. Yeah. But a lot of people tell you you can't do that, but it's really, it's a matter of... Well, that's just an old rule, but it's really fine. For example, you live in the Pacific Northwest. People drink Pinot Noir with salmon all the time, and it's a wonderful combination because the lightness, the fruit in that, in the wine goes with the strong, slightly oily taste of the salmon. It's it's a perfect combination. I love the notion that it's not a test and it, this this sensitivity for balance and just exploring things and tasting it and, and going with what you like. Uh, occasionally, I wonder if it's more tradition or if it's more real. For instance, when I was in Sicily, I would have a cappuccino after lunch and my Sicilian friends, I forget the Italian phrase, but it was literally, I throw my arms down. I can't believe you're going to do that. You're going to toss milk on top of the tomatoes in your stomach. Uh, have you heard of that? Absolutely. The Italians do have rules, and if you break it, they will kindly smile and say, well, perhaps you don't want to do that. But, for example, you may have noticed that in Italy, Italians eat their salads after the main course. In America, we eat them before. The reason that they eat them after is because the lightness of the leaves goes on top of the heavier food and sits better, so we digest better than having the heavy food on top of the light. Huh, packing smartly. Yeah. Similarly, the notion of having milk in your coffee would weigh down on your stomach. That's what that's really about. It's not in the mouth. It's in the stomach. Now, do you think... therefore... Uh, excuse me, Fred, do you think there's yeah. something to that? I mean, you don't need to necessarily follow it like the gospel, but does that make sense to you, what they're... they're yes, um, absolutely. The other thing is that the Italians tend to think of the espresso as the punctuation mark at the end of the paragraph that was the meal. And it is a focused little flavor. It's wonderful. It tends to reorient your palate toward beauty after going through all those different experiences. And it's a wonderful way to conclude. Milk would coat the tongue, coat the palate, and to them it feels heavy. Now, people who want milk can have what's called a cafe macchiato, I was going to which ask is if not that... like the American so-called macchiato, but macchiato in Italian means to stain. So it's an espresso that's been stained with a little bit of milk, and for people with digestive issues, it helps the coffee go down fine. And again, if we would rather have cheese on our fish, which people say you're not supposed to do if you'd rather have milk in your coffee, also fine, but experiment the other way. Learn the experiences both ways and then come to your own conclusion. And as always, when you're visiting any country, try to be respectful of local tradition. So if something is really horrifying, you don't do it. Very nice. And the happy news for me is after lunch, I can have a coffee macchiato and they won't throw their arms down. Absolutely. Oh, this is nice. Fred Plotkin. Fred has written a beautiful book called Italy, the Gourmet Traveler. Today we're talking about appreciating the cuisine of Italy. Fred, when I'm trying to put things together, and you were talking so eloquently about how the volcanic soil changes the lemons, adds to the lemons for the limoncello and Sorrento and so on, the French have this concept called terroir. Um, And it's always confused me a little bit because I don't know how much it is cultural and ritual and how much it is physical. And it it seems to be treated like it's exclusively French, but it seems like it's Italian also. 
In Italian, it would be called territorio. And terroir simply means a somewhere-ness. That is not my word. It's the word of Matt Kramer, who's a great wine writer. Somewhere-ness meaning that the product comes from a soil, from a climate, and from a tradition. And if you try to transplant it to another place, it loses many of its characteristics. So people can have a terroir. I, li- I invented a word called marwar, which is to say a water environment, a sea environment, mm. so that in Liguria, where the water is less salty than it might be in Sicily, the flavor of the fish is different because of the salt content in the water. I'm glad you added tradition to that because that takes it a little bit beyond the physical soil and climate. Absolutely. Part of tradition, in fact, is who has been on the land. So if you take the city of Parma, north-central Italy, it was occupied by the French for a long time so that there are certain French elements in the cooking that you would not find in Bologna. The people of Parma like to use butter in amounts much greater than most Italians, and that's the French influence. You wrote in your book how dishes have local roots, and you prefer to eat the dishes in the places of their origin, and uh, that seems to be related to that whole sensitivity. Well, the fact that if people have particular products near at hand, the city of Ferrara produces some of the great pears of the world. So pears are a big part of the cuisine. And if you have local Ferrara pears with their dishes in the town of Ferrara, it will taste better than doing that dish with another pear, say in Oregon or New York State. In Oregon and New York State, it doesn't have the same flavor and experience to it. Now, as a gourmet eater in Italy, is it realistic that you can actually get your produce um, 24 hours from the time it was picked? Well, what I do, I live in a little town in Liguria, not far from Genoa. One can get your produce in the morning or, frankly, again in the afternoon because sometimes the sellers in between go home and pick some more. We have little ladies who are called uh, cultivatrici diretti. These are women who directly cultivate their own herbs, their own greens, and they go home at lunchtime. They pull up more out of the ground and bring them in to sell them in the afternoon. Wow. That's how fresh it is. And you can appreciate that. Oh, absolutely, because you can still smell the soil on them. You know, what, That's right, really the right now you just took me to Switzerland, believe it or not, to one of my travel memories, and it's the only place I have to eat my salad with my fingers. It's just right because at this chalet up in the Alps, my friend Walter picks the lettuce just before dinner time. They wash it, and they have a nice light dressing, and it's just exquisite. And it's because I didn't really put this together, but it's, it's because it's just literally hours out of the ground. That's it. Any food, when it comes out of the ground or out of the sea, the more it's out of its element, the more it starts to lose its particular characteristics. There is a little restaurant I love in Trieste in northeastern Italy where they have a garden in the back, and they serve baked ham, and the ham is baked in a rosemary crust. Just before you're about to eat, they go into the garden, and they pull up out of the ground a fresh horseradish, They dust it off, and they grate the horseradish onto the ham. You will never taste anything like that because it literally is right out of the ground. That's Italian. That's worth traveling for. Oh, yeah. One of my uh, keys when I'm researching and looking for a good restaurant, and I'd love to get your take on this, is I look for, obviously, a place that's filled with locals rather than tourists. But um, on the menu, it says a lot to me. If it's a small, handwritten menu in one language, 
It's small because it was determined by what was fresh in the market that morning. It's in one language because they're catering primarily to locals. Tourists are welcome, but they're catering to locals. And it's small because there's not a lot of variety. They want to go through what they've picked today, and they don't want to stock every possible whim you might have when it comes to ordering. Does that make sense to you when you're looking at restaurants in Italy? Yes. If you go into a restaurant and they have endless selections, that means there's a lot of food lying around. Right. And I would rather have fewer selections but know that everything arrived fresh and is ready to be served. So that's a in plus. In terms of the yeah. menu written in the original language, I put all of those terms in Italy for the gourmet traveler in Italian and then parenthetically in English so that you can recognize, if I say to you, go into a restaurant in Martina Franca and have orecchiette, you may not know what those are, but they're local ear-shaped pasta, fave or fava beans and so forth. And I would rather that people, even if they mispronounce it, it doesn't matter, Italians are very accommodating, I would rather that they try to say it in Italian because that will open their hearts more to hear you try to say it in their language than trying to say it in English and expecting to be understood. Very good advice. Food is friendship, too. I'm speaking with Fred Plotkin, and we're talking about eating in Italy. Fred's written a brilliant book called Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. This is Travel with Rick Steves at 877-333-RICK. That's 877-333-7425. Or email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. We have uh, Sean on the line in Worcester, Massachusetts. Sean, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi, Fred. Hi. What's your thought, Sean? I have a question about uh, food traditions as you move from north to south in Italy. I think a lot of authors, and Rick, I think you're one of them, have talked about how the Italian experience gets much more intense as you travel further south in Italy. Fred, I wonder if you can say a word or two about how really regional food traditions change as you move from the north part of the country to the south. I would only say that it's not a question of north and south. It's a question of how far from the mainstream you go. So, for example, if you're in Venice, a city I love, it is completely given over to tourism. If you get on the train and go 30 minutes away to Treviso, already you are in a much more Italian setting. If you get on the train and go 15 minutes more, you are in Conegliano, where there are only Italians. So the foods that I might have you try in Venice will perhaps be a little more genuine, a little more traditional in Conegliano because of the distance from the tourist centers. And if we were to go to any region of Italy, Milan will be more cosmopolitan. If you go to Pavia, 30 minutes to the south, suddenly the food has a lot more somewhereness about it. I love southern Italy because there is a directness that one finds there that one does not necessarily find in the north. So we're getting that visceral Italian experience that perhaps we dream of when we go that, frankly, Tuscany doesn't offer anymore. Tuscany has been corrupted by tourism. I love going to Tuscany for the people, for the red wine, and for the matchless art in its museums. But as a touristic experience, to learn about the Italians, Tuscany is sort of shot. So when you're talking strictly about food, do you think then, Fred, that it'd be more valuable to visit really local towns in southern Italy than to look for local towns, say, in central or northern Italy, where there's more of a touristic influence? No. Wherever you go around the country, there are local towns that are really unspoiled. In the book, for every region, I named what I called the classic town. This doesn't mean the best town, but it means the town that embodies most of what is classical about the region. So, for example, if you go to the Alto Adige in the far north, 
rather than send you to famous Bolzano, I send you to Bressanone, which is nearby. It looks exactly the way the town should. It has the flavors that are classical and so on. In Sicily, rather than send you to Palermo or Taormina, which have tourists, I send you to Siracusa, which is a sensational town, incredible food, the language, the flavors, the air, everything is classic Sicily. So whatever region you go to throughout the country, you will find, call it traditional, call it classical, whatever we want, an experience that is just not available anymore in the major tourist towns. Fred, when you talk about classic, you wrote that uh, the cuisine is living and evolving, and, quote, classic is not necessarily what you want to go for. That's a, an interesting sort of eye-opener for travelers who might go right in for that classic, you know, fettuccine Alfredo, whatever all the tourists are going for. Well, fettuccine Alfredo is fine in Rome, but um, you wouldn't want to have it elsewhere. The word I never use, actually, is authentic, because how do we determine what authentic is? Classic may mean that something has been done traditionally in a place for a long time. But yes, food evolves all the time. For example, Italy, look at it geographically, is this giant raft that sticks out in the Mediterranean. Ships arrive and have always arrived there from the Middle East, from Africa, from the Americas, bringing all kinds of ingredients. So the tomato really was not consumed in Italy until almost the 18th century. Imagine Italian food without tomatoes, specifically Neapolitan food. Is it classic? Yes. It's not ancient. But when the Italians integrated the tomato into their cuisine, everything changed. That is evolving cuisine. Sean, thanks for your call. Thanks so much. Thank you, Sean. We have William on the phone in Miami. Hi, William. Thanks for your call. Hi, gentlemen. How are you guys today? Doing good, thanks. Excellent. Yeah, about three years ago, I went to Tuscany with a group of people, and three of the persons were uh, restaurant owners. You know, we ate at some very good restaurants, but the place that the restaurant owners were the most impressed with were the auto grill restaurants that uh, they have dotting along the uh, autostradas. Have you ever uh, stopped at one of these? I have many in my book, in fact. Really? Uh, There was a threat a few years ago that McDonald's would buy them out and turn them into McDonald's, and there was a national protest. Nothing against McDonald's, but an auto grill is something uniquely Italian. You can drive into them on the highways and find really good pasta and soup and prosciutto with melon. Not fancy cuisine, but your classic, earthy, basic Italian food. You can buy the most amazing ingredients there that you would not find in the fanciest gourmet shop in New York. You can buy big hunks of cheese. You can buy whole legs of ham, incredible cakes to take away. And... It makes it rather unique. It's a better supermarket than most anything you would find in in major cities. Fred, for the listeners that aren't familiar with an auto grill, they've got their super freeway system, and every half hour or so you've got a rest stop, and it's got these giant sprawling uh, restaurants and shops and supermarkets that Fred's discussing, many of them going over the top of the freeway so you can access it from both directions on the freeway. And you would write these off as just fast food in the rest of Europe or the United States. It's fascinating to think that a, a gourmet eater would recognize them as, as simple but good quality meals. Are you talking about the self-service cafeteria parts up there or the restaurants associated with the auto grills, Fred? Well, they're both. I was just in an auto grill near San Remo, and it was cafeteria style, but of excellent quality because all they had were fish, vegetables, very fresh things. I was then in an auto grill near Verona, 
where they had earthier dishes. They had risottos. They had polenta. They had beautiful sliced salami and so on to go with those foods and a glass of wine. Now, this may strike you as unusual, that you can have a lot of wine at the auto grill and then get back out on the road. They used to serve brandy, but they stopped doing that. <laughs> so they vary according to region? Absolutely. Again, you bring up a wonderful point, William, that in America, everything would be standardized. In Italy, they love the fact that in Liguria, let's say, you would have beautiful vegetables. In Verona, you would have polenta. In Sicily, you might have fresh tuna steaks. They love serving you local food. That's really the point. Actually, yeah, we, we had it one uh, coming out of Milan, and it wasn't, uh, you know, as much as the one on the road from Venice. It was that was a fantastic one with all kinds of fresh salads and pasta dishes. I mean, all kinds of things. I mean, it had about four or five different types of mineral water. I mean, mm-hmm. I know it. Yeah. One of the most amazing places, and it's just, you know, used to American turnpike food, you're, you're really wild. And it's a comment on the sophistication of just the average Italian out on a drive. They want good regional quality as they travel. Their truck drivers must be very fat. <laughs> they're actually, they're very knowledgeable. Yeah, all over Europe, if you go where the truck drivers go, it's considered at least a good value for a restaurant. Absolutely. Well, my philosophy is the Italian one, that we only get a certain amount of food and calories every day. They may as well be really good. You can imagine with what I do, I have to watch my weight all the time. And therefore, it's preferable to eat excellent food. I'm not saying fancy. I'm really not fancy. I always prefer simple, beautiful foods to some fancy concoction in a so-called gourmet restaurant. William, thanks for your call. Thank you very much. Bye, guys. Bye now. Bye. Barbara's on the line in Duluth, Georgia. Hi, how are you? Doing fine. Thanks for your call. Do you have a question for Fred? Well, my question was, you know, the food is fabulous all over Europe, and people travel because of the different cultures and foods. And what do people do when they have special dietary needs or if they're just a picky eater, such as myself? Well, there is a difference, I believe, between a dietary need or an allergy or a religious belief that prevents you from having something and being picky. Um, picky, and I don't know if this is your case, Barbara, is often about resistance to the new or the different. I do have very serious food allergies, and I've learned the words for the foods that I can't consume in every language I go to, and I'm very explicit about saying I will be happy to eat your food, but I can't have X, Y, and Z. And... They they're getting better about that. Depends where you go to. If you go to Finland, in Finland, where the population is so inbred, it's a wonderful country. I love Finland. Great fish, by the way. They have allergies and are very understanding about the fact that you can't eat certain foods. In countries that are larger and more mixed, such as Italy and France, they used to sort of fluff off the notion of allergies as being a problem but they've come to be more sensitive about it. Um, perhaps because Italy and France have wonderful healthcare systems, they figure, okay, we can take care of that. But for example, Italy, the Italians genetically have more predisposition to diabetes than certain other peoples. And therefore, if you say no sugar, they do understand. So I tend to equate my allergies to their diabetes. And they suddenly realize that it can be serious, even though sugar is not my problem. 
Right. I'm more of a picky eater rather than someone who has allergies or dietary needs, you know, such as kosher or, you know, uh, along those lines. And I do not eat poultry. There are times when I have traveled in Europe uh, and I've traveled on tours where the dinner is always poultry. And the only way to get around it is, of course, to ask for something different, which they are very accommodating in replacing uh, either with pasta or an, another type of meat or fish. But, you know, for people who are a little on the picky side, I was just wondering, other than asking for something else, because sometimes I know when you travel they have these American menus, I believe they're called, where mm-hmm. it's the, the menu for the day, and that's what it is, and some places don't like to vary. Well, unfortunately, when someone takes a tour, she should have to say in advance, I don't eat the following. Yes. So that they can advise the restaurant you're going to in advance. Um, I tend to be a Rick Steves kind of traveler who tries to go off in different directions on my own and learn things and explore. Mm -hmm. But if you prefer to go with a group, I do understand that, then you would want to say no poultry. And you don't even have to give an explanation. You don't have to say you're picky or you're allergic. You can simply say no poultry and it should remain at that. And they would offer an alternative. Mm-hmm. But what happens in restaurants if they prepare 24 chicken dishes and then you arrive and say, I don't eat poultry, they're not always ready to change that for you. So ahead of time on a tour, you can simply say no poultry. Okay. Barbara, thanks for mm-hmm. your call. Thank you so much. I'm speaking with Fred Plotkin. Fred writes the uh, book Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. Gary in San Rafael, California. Hi, Gary. Thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. How are you? Great. Thanks. Thanks for taking my call. Hi, Fred. How are you today? Hi, Gary. Uh, My call is actually not so much about food, but about uh, red wine in Italy. Um, I've been there a couple of times, and I absolutely love good red wine. In fact, I live about a half an hour south of the Napa Valley wine country in, in California, and I noticed in Italy that the house wine, when you go into a restaurant, is not only inexpensive and absolutely wonderful, but it doesn't seem to cause a whole lot of a heck of a hangover or a headache or anything else. And I'm wondering if there's something different about the wine there or or what the situation is. I have the answer. You live in a part of the world that has a lot of sun. Yes. More than most of Italy. We think of Italy as sunny Italy, but where you live, there's more sun. And therefore the sugars that are produced in the grapes are in greater quantity than in European wines. What happens with sugar is that it converts to alcohol. So a California red wine invariably will have a higher level of alcohol than an Italian red wine. There are a few, such as Barolo in Italy, that are high in alcohol, Mm -hmm. but in general they're lower. So that Chianti, Nebbiolo, Dolcetto, all of those wines might be 12, 13, 13.5%, whereas in California, it's 15. Oh. That's the main difference. Then that's what causes that headachey kind of a feeling that you get the next day if you drink a little too much of it then. True. And the other thing is that Italians understand viscerally that wine is meant to go with food. Right. And therefore, they tend not to consume too much wine away from the meal. If they're having a glass of wine, there will be food right next to it. And the food tends to absorb some of the alcohol so that as you digest it, 
the impact is not the same as having a glass of wine as a cocktail before a meal. It makes, a lot, makes an awful lot of sense. You know, Fred, now that you mentioned this, I've um, really been struck in the last couple of years how different regions of Italy have their their wines that are really in the forefront, and they're so proud of them. And, you know, every tourist knows about Brunello di Montalcino as sort of the great, you know, full-bodied red wine of, of Tuscany. Uh, and then yes, you go, southern you, Tuscany. You go to Umbria, and I, I, I said, well, is this like the Brunello of uh, Umbria? And they said, no, uh, Brunello is the Sagrantino of Tuscany. And they had their wine, uh, the (laughs) Sagrantino, I think it was. Even Lazio had its own wine that it was really proud of. And they were telling me in the old days it was just a lot of uh, sort of fermented grape punch. And now it's getting much more sophisticated and, and different regions have their own proud wine. What advice can you give us in that regard? Well, they always have. Um, When you look at Italy, remember it's two-thirds mountains. And they would not think to transport Brunello to Umbria or Sagrantino to Tuscany. Therefore, they drink very locally. When they started tasting wines of different areas, they understood how wine could be improved, how it could be rounded and so forth. And what they do is they balance the historic flavors with a cleaner, more elegant form of winemaking. Sagrantino is a wonderful example. Sagrantino was sacramental wine. And it was the wine that was sent to the Vatican and churches around Italy for use during sacraments. Sagra means sacred or sacrament. Ah. And so this was sacramental wine. Then they discovered, of course, that when you spilled some of that red wine, it stained the beautiful marble in the churches of Italy. So it was decided by papal decree that white wine should now be sacramental wine. The blood of Christ is a little lighter than it used to be. So therefore, with all of those grapes around in Umbria, they converted Sagrantino from an intense wine to a wine that goes better with food. So it it too has evolved. We were talking before about how things change. That's a wonderful example of how things change. Boy, that's my tip. Go to Assisi and have Sagrantino when you're thinking of St. Francis. On, On this wine issue, I'm just such a... I'm pretty simple with my wine, and I just like full-bodied wine when I'm in Italy. So I say corposo, per favore. Mm-hmm. Um, is that is that good advice if you like to appreciate the good wine of Italy, or is that just the mark of a of a bumpkin? No, corposo is a definite statement and a preference. And as I said before, we should learn through experimentation what our preferences are. Okay, so I like and corposo, and that's okay. That's fine. I like profumato. I like wines that are very fragrant, because I find that it. It increases my uh, palate when I have it with food. What is that word, profumato? Profumato means perfume, but it's not that they add perfume. No, no, no. But it it just means that when you stick your nose in the glass, there's a big fragrance, and I love that. Now, to me, I'm just discovering this on my own, but I like a complexity, and I like a long finish. Is that exclusively one kind of wine, or is just quality complex with a good finish? Um, Those are qualities that one can find throughout Italy. For example, there are wines from western Sicily that are very complex. They have an almost honey, spicy, gingery flavor to them and have a very, very, very long finish. And it would be the kind of wine I might have with a strong piece of cheese because they go very well together. Other wines such as Suave are not complex. They don't have a long finish but they're perfectly right for the lake fish that come from nearby Lake Garda. A smart traveler then would have uh, the key uh, vocabulary ready to explain what they want when they go to that little local-style restaurant. Either that or I always say, cosa suggerisce, what do you suggest? 
because in Italy, they're not trying to sell you stuff, except for a couple of restaurants in Rome, Florence, and Venice. In Italy, they are so proud of their culture, and food is culture there, that they will tell you that we believe this wine goes well with this food because, and they'll give you an explanation. That's very important. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we're eating our way through Italy in a gourmet style. Joining us is Fred Plotkin, and Fred has written a guidebook to uh, appreciating Italian cuisine called Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. I had a delightful evening just getting to know this book, and my goodness, it is a it's a dictionary for everything you need to know to really appreciate one of the great aspects of Italy and why so many people love Italy, it's cuisine. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. That's 877-333-7425. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Stuart's on the line in Boise, Idaho. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Rick. As I've been listening to you and Fred and the, and the callers, I, my question kind of changes. I, I'd like to ask it and then go for a different question. My original question was, how do you find the really, really great restaurants? We found good food. We never had any bad food, but nothing that I would say was just an absolute wow. Well, Stuart, I would guess I would have to ask you, what do you mean by a great restaurant? And that's kind of where I was getting to with the second question of what should you really be looking for when you go in for your experience? We enjoyed the local ambiance, the local wines, the the fresh foods. But I was always thinking maybe this is just a preconceived notion that was wrong was that, you know, I'm going to go over there and almost any place I go, it's just going to be like, you know, like a five-star restaurant in New York City or something. Food was great. But for whatever reason, it wasn't just something that I was going to say, I, I need to, to steal the menu so that I know you know, where I ate and I want to come back here next time. Well, I live in New York City, and it's a very competitive restaurant environment. And therefore, they feel they have to do more. And it's created the expectation among diners that every bit of the service must be very refined, that the decor has to be a certain way. I, in truth, don't care about decor. I care about cleanliness. So if an environment is not clean, I certainly won't go there. But I have, I possess what's called the Plotkin nose, which has taken me all over the world. And my nose says to me, there is fresh food here. There's fragrant food here. The place is clean. And if it passes that test, then I go in. And then, frankly, it's a bit of hit or miss. But in... Italy, service, I believe, is much more oriented to the way people eat. So they don't do that terrible thing of clearing dishes before everyone's done. I hate that. Rushes people out of there. They don't say ever things like, are you still working on that? Which is an odious way. It's not work when you're in a restaurant. It's pleasure. What in our culture is called service is really about getting us out the door fast so they can put someone else at the table. In Italy, you are made welcome. The table is yours for as long as you'd like it, and that, to me, is good service. They don't have to bring out all the food at once because if they do, it means that they had to cook it all at once and they didn't do it with the same attention to care and quality. So it's first about the eating. It's about the smile. It's about the welcome. That, to me, is a good restaurant. Oh, that's fantastic. And so what I'm hearing from you then, Fred, is that uh, really it's a matter of certainly personal choice and taste, but just going in, and it sounds like you're recommending just enjoy the experience and stop looking for, you know, this 
wild explosion that goes off in your head or something? Well, there should be a series of small explosions. If okay. they try to dazzle you, they're doing something wrong. Uh, I would rather that when that piece of cheese in the town of Urbino that lands in front of me, that is the local, it's called Formaggio di Fossa, if that plain piece of cheese on an empty plate sits in front of me and I take a little crumb of it and it explodes in my mouth, that means that the people who chose that cheese rather than something more banal and served it on a plain plate instead of a fancy plate, understand that it's all about what's on the plate and in the mouth. That, to me, is a great restaurant. Not the way things are plated. I hate when people stack ingredients on top of one another so that I have to take them apart. It's just not the way food was meant to be eaten. You've uh, enlightened me quite a bit. Thank you very much. Thanks, Stuart. Thank you. We have Ro on the line in South Orleans, Massachusetts. Hi, Ro. Hi, Rick. How are you? Great. Thanks for your call. Got a question or comment for Fred? Yes, I do. Um, I've grown up in an Italian household, and I've learned to cook the way my grandmothers and my aunts and my uncles, everyone in my family cooks. And I really enjoy it, but I'm, I'm finding, as I've gone to Italy a few times now, and really enjoyed the concept of eating that, Fred's talking about that, one plate after another comes out to you. Everything in season, everything of the slow food movement, everything with vegetables comes out, and then something else comes out, and then a pasta comes out, and maybe a rabbit ragu comes out of some kind. Or It's wonderful, but how do I, in my home, cook like that and enjoy my company at the same time? You know, there's this hang in my family, of course, you know, my mother and my grandmother never sat down and ate a hot meal. I want to try to be with my company and cook as I've learned to cook and as I appreciate what I've eaten in in Italy. Ro, the first thing to do is to write down your family recipes. These are precious treasures that need to be passed on. So write down the quantities and write down the process. You don't have to be a food writer to do that. But these are essential bits of heritage that we cannot let disappear. That said, what you want to do is perhaps think in terms of smaller portions. There are many things that can be prepared ahead of time and then plated at the moment. Someone has to get up to go from the table to the kitchen, so you can do that. And you don't immediately have to serve one course after the next. You can linger over your wine. You can continue conversation. A meal is not meant to be rushed through. It's meant to be savored. And for that reason, take your time with it. Prepare things that can be served perhaps at room temperature originally so that they can come out in the first course or two. Then go in for a couple of minutes, make the pasta. The sauce will have been made already. Then Mm -hmm. bring that out. Obviously, if you've made a lasagna ahead of time, that will be ready to serve. You just time it accordingly. Look at a meal as a series of things to bring forth. Have a cheese course with fruit. That doesn't take much cooking. Mm -hmm. Prepare your salad ahead of time and then dress it at the moment it's being served. Make the coffee to order, and they'll just have to wait. You're the one doing the wonderful kindness for them so that they have nothing to complain about. Thank you. That's wonderful. I I have tried to do some of that. It's especially difficult with fish. And and living here on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, I serve a lot of fish dishes. So it's Mm -hmm. it's been a challenge, but you're right. I I think um, doing some of that, maybe more at a room temperature, is a good experiment to try. Either that or also certain fish dishes can be prepared ahead 
especially the the cold dishes. I don't know where your family is from in Italy, but southern Italy and Liguria and the Veneto have a lot of cold fish dishes that are wonderful, such as sardine saor, which is basically fish that are cured with onions, raisins, and pine nuts. Oh, yes. Actually, I have a good story about where my family is from. I, my great-grandfather was a chef at Monte Cassino. Mm-hmm. And my father's family is from Caserta, and they brought over marvelous pizza <laughs> recipes, and I sort of grew up in uh, their pizza parlors. So it's always been a, a good family of cooking and, and desserts as well, which I'm now sharing with my kids um, by... Write it all down. Yeah, I'm trying to, and you're right, it's a challenge, but it's it's necessary. Thank you so much. Thanks for your call, Rob. Appreciate it. Take care now. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Fred Plotkin. Fred's the author of Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. Fred, this has been just a fascinating, and I would even say inspirational hour. From the conversations we've had with our listeners and the topics we've been sharing, sum it up by taking me to a restaurant that's near and dear to your heart in Italy, and and just paint a little picture of what we're eating and where we are. It's a restaurant called Ristorante San Giorgio, St. George, in Cervo, C-E-R-V-O, in western Liguria. And it is a hill town. Liguria doesn't have many hill towns, but this is a hill town. And from the terrace of the restaurant, you can see the Mediterranean Sea. The fish comes from right there. If you turn around, the hills behind you have olive groves, chestnuts, beautiful vegetables, small animals such as rabbit running wild. And all the food served in this restaurant is sourced right there. The woman who runs it is named Caterina. She's one of the great chefs I know in all of Italy. She serves with such love. She understands balance and food better than anyone I've ever encountered. And it is the perfect environment to enjoy food. It's not inexpensive because she does source locally from the best available resources for food. But for a really great experience, don't expect the so-called fancy service we were talking about before. Expect her son Alessandro to come out and put the dishes down and smile and ask, is everything as you wish? And then he'll go away. And when he wants to, he'll come back. Katerina, in the meantime, will be preparing something else for you. You are never rushed. You are made to feel at home. And as you step out into this beautiful town of Cervo, with the sun going down in the west over the Mediterranean, you have lived the entire Italian experience. Beautiful, beautiful image. And I would imagine if you know where to look, you could find that almost every corner of Italy. Ingredients, balance, love. Katerina, or someone like Katerina, and her family sharing the Italian knack for good living. Fred Plotkin, author of Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rick. I appreciate it a lot. I'll see you again. Perhaps in Italy we'll have a meal together. Okay. Ciao. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to Italy and beyond. On Rick's website, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Italy's top sites, and a monthly travel newsletter and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To prepare for your next Italian adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.